Dude, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> what you do? Got to personally concurse, man. Oh man, I'm sure. I'm sure my mom's on a video call. Uh, my man, man, so season three episode two was a banger uh we had chasm hansen on on the show and guess what the topic was ladies and gentlemen squatting and it it was a good it was a really really good conversation i think that people who listen to it are going to get a lot out of it and it might be a little bit of a little bit contrarian to their, to their belief structures. So I'm excited to, to put it out into the world. And then Ryan, you have a little little gift for them at the end of episode 20, season three, episode two. Uh, and you want to you want to tell them what you're gonna you're gonna talk about a little moment abs. Oh, is that what I'm gonna talk? That we're great. We're gonna do that. Okay. Yeah, we, we didn't discuss this before we went on air, so I wasn't sure if that it actually passed the test. No, I'm gonna I'll put out a little video. Stay tuned. Uh, just uh, I'm trying to understand this stuff. It's actually really timely that we had him on because this is something that I've been trying to understand more because I think I kind of figured out that physics are important. Hey, and it. it's it might not actually be as complicated as we think because I think a lot of people shy away from it because it, it can get insane if you start actually looking into to physics as a study. But I think in, in relation to what we do, it's probably not overly complicated. So I think, like Chasm said, if you understand anatomy and, and physics, things start to make a lot more sense from an exercise selection standpoint. So just starting to play with um, just looking at different exercises, different positions. And I, you know, I got this really cool pen. It was $19 for my iPad. And I, I had to make some use out of it because I am going to write it off. So that's going to be the video. We're going to go ahead and take a look at some different squats and understand that my physics knowledge is about as much as a third graders and my <laughs> I don't think third graders take physics so it's gotta it's gotta be pretty your drawings are pretty bad uh so i, I know that i know that i know the audience will will enjoy that if they stick around uh for the outro and the really really important to spec to be specific in this we are not talking about a prehab rehab standpoint from squatting no. the context of of this conversation is purely and solely hypertrophy. Uh, so before you, you know, get your panties in a bundle, uh, that is what we were talking about. We are not arguing the uh, the potential deleterious effects of having too much muscle. That is not the point of the show. The point of the show is, hey, if we're going to use the squat for hypertrophy, what are the positives and the negatives? How can we adjust it? Uh, things like that. So here it is. Stay tuned. Enjoy. <laughs> I'm gonna leave that in. <laughs> you enjoy. <laughs> Just to frame this, I think I listened to the your last podcast, one of the last podcasts you did with was Isertel, and I think you did a really, really good job of coming back again and again, like describing context. Because most of the time, you guys were arguing about things like uh, you just had a different idea in mind when you were discussing it, uh, and so I really want to just frame the discussion that this is the only thing we are talking about here is is hypertrophy, and and so that is that is the frame uh, we are. We understand that there can be negatives to hypertrophy. That is not what we're debating. We are debating what is the is the squat? Is it the best exercise for quad and glute development? Is it a mediocre exercise? And for who? That is essentially the discussion that we want to have. Um, and so I'll let I'll let you take it away from there. What do you feel like the muscular limiter for a squat with a barbell is? 
Well, I think, and I'll pull up my uh, context thing, right, is, is I think we first need to define what a limiter really is because, you know, I listened to the last podcast you guys did, episode 19 for whenever this gets released, you know, and, and there's things that we can look at. So if we look at like mechanical, like, okay, what simply just, you know, breaks at this joint um, in terms of its ability to maintain force, then we can qualify that. But there's going to be a lot of things that affect what that limiter is. So if we want to put this in the context of like the, you know, parallel, parallel line squat or the torso and the shin angle are, you know, perfectly parallel from each other and that's everybody's like, well, I wish I could squat like that. Then we can sit and we can define, like we can look at the joint mechanics and say, all right, provided you have equally like strengthened and hypertrophied everything up to this point, we could do that. But I want to say that that is a very limited story in terms of context, in terms of applying that to multiple individuals and scenarios, everything from just how fast you're coming down in the squat, you know, and things like that. Um, and so as we enter this discussion, I think what would be good is, is that we separate the hip and the knee because it's easier to define what is the limiter at hip extension and just leave the knee out of it and discuss that first. Because then we can talk about, all right, well, what's going to be the limiter for you? Is it just going to be the hip extension or the knee? And kind of break it up and tell the story from there, if that works for you guys. Cool. Yeah, that sounds good. The yeah. the It's interesting to me that you if you look at kind of I, – I pulled up this quote because I thought it would, it would help frame the situation. And that humans may be less than the sum of their parts when it comes to multiple, multi-joint force production. And so I think that's – I, that might that might allow us to jump into this, but yeah, what do you feel like the limiter is for hip extension? Yeah, so if we look at if we look at hip extension and we look at what we have there, right, and keeping in mind this is a chain, right? So we have you know the pelvic to femur stuff, and that's going to be mainly in this case that's going to be our glute max and our adductor magnus are going to be the main two drivers of hip extension, and then on the other side because obviously we have a bar somewhere placed on our back. Right. We are going to have the entire spinal chain. And so we're going to have the whole group of erectors that are going through there. Which ones are involved are going to be depending on bar position and stuff like that. Um, but if we're talking about like just what if we were to put as much force through that pattern, which is going to be the thing that likely is going to break if everything is able to function? The leverage for the hip extensors, the glute and the adductor together are going to supersede the erectors the majority of the time, right? But this is where the caveat comes in. We have a nervous system that kind of prevents us from getting into some of these positions. And if we look at those joints, so if I start getting to the point where my glutes or my adductors are getting point to where they're, they can't contribute mechanically as well, there's still a buffer there in terms of they they get gradually weak. Whereas when we look at the spine, like we're maintaining the lever, like the, the arch of the lumbar spine, we lose mechanics incredibly fast as we start to round that spine. So I believe I have a spine somewhere over here, right on the other side of the computer. Um, and so for those of you guys that aren't able to see this, basically you have this U, very slight U-shaped curve. This is kind of like an upside down bridge. So when my erectors are able to pull this together, there's like essentially a pretty good leverage to pull that that way. But the second it starts to get straight and my erectors are more harder. like this, it's so a massive, 
they're getting more. It's not so much the change in muscle length as much as it's change of leverage. You also have a case, right? Because the bar. they're not they're not anywhere near their fully lengthened position, right? This is the standard Instagram deadlift right here. So um, it's not that they're it's not that that change in the actual tissue length is the main change in their mechanical advantage. It's just the change in the leverage that they go from basically being able to hold like an arch position to essentially trying to be able to somehow create extension with almost no lever into the plane of extension. So in this case, everything is compressing more than it is extending, whereas for slightly extended, all of those muscles are able to contribute to more extension. So when it comes to like, I'm either going to make or break it, the erectors have the least buffer for when you start to lose spinal position, done, mm -hmm. right? And so one of the things that we kind of learn from a, a movement perspective as we do these lifts over and over is we learn to basically try and compensate in areas of the body that have kind of a buffer rather than pushing to the point where all of a sudden it's like, I was good, I was good, I was good, I was good, and then I was dead, right? Like, because there's, like, if you're getting close to fatigue and you've been able to maintain, like, this perfect spinal position and then all of a sudden you come out of it a couple degrees, the magnitude of force that you would need to be able to, like, increase in those erectors in that point of fatigue would be, it's just, it's just not a realistic thing for your body to overcome, and then you just end up dumping the bar. So what most people do is they learn to let other things fail a little bit first because we can compensate and we can buffer these things. So if you look at somebody's squat technique, what they tend to do is they tend to start doing things like, well, they'll cut the range of motion, you know, at one joint or another, they'll, they'll start shifting either the knees, the hips, they'll start moving at joints where it's like, Hey, I have other solutions here to be able to pick up a little bit of slack rather than, well, I mean, I could get the bar, you know, a little bit closer. Or I could get lower by doing this. <coughs> Excuse me. As I choke on my death wish coffee. Uh -huh. Plug. Uh, yeah. Right? <laughs> that was solid. So, so I think it's important to kind of establish your parameters in terms of like, if we're talking about a limiter, there is going to be a mechanical limiter. But the, the reality is, is that hitting that mechanical limiter in training is not as simple as it sounds because we have all of these motor patterns and all of this neurology that's designed to help us succeed when we are getting into these positions where we would otherwise no longer be able to achieve movement and force output, right? I mean, the whole purpose of being a good athlete is you're able to produce force from a variety of positions. You're a professional compensator. And so if we talk about the squat, it's just moving the bar up and down. And we're going to talk about, well, what's the limiter of that? It's going to, a lot of it's going to depend on what have you adapted to try and, you know, adjust as you approach fatigue. So if we, if we look at the hips and we were to say, well, okay, we are going to maintain absolutely perfect form. Your glutes, especially in a squat and stuff like that, you know, have so much force production and they gain a lot of leverage and you can produce a lot of torque there. So what you'll actually see a lot of times is, What'll happen is is people will they will start post tilting but flexing the spine, meaning that the glutes are the glutes are creating torque at the hip, but the the spine can't compensate by moving it up, right? So what ends up happening is they have to tuck until the lever is shortened enough that bar and the hips have come forward enough that they can kind of like do a, that gross like stand up hippie extension thing in the middle, 
And that's like just a layer of compensations on the fact that like, well, we had torque at the hip, but in order for the, in order to move that lever that is the spine, we somehow had to get the more of the spine underneath and decrease the lever on the spine, if that makes sense. So what my body decided to do is allow my butt to come under and forward rather than trying to push the weight up. So that seems like kind of counter to, to what I think that I see. And I realize that there is a limitation of what we can actually see visually. But, um, you know, I, I, I'm seeing as, because I, I would assume you're talking about um, out of the hole on the concentric in that scenario, correct? Well, it, it just, some people will do it as they're coming down towards the bottom. Mm -hmm. That makes sense, yeah. There's multiple reasons that the hip can tuck. One can simply just be like you, the, the position that you're using. You're right. running out of the ability to hip flex in, in the front, and that happens. So, yes, yeah, so in this case, if we're being very specific, it would be somebody that could come down with a neutral pelvis, but then, then when they would go to go up, they would need to, you know, they would essentially start to lose a little bit of that spinal position, you know. That's actually a cue. Kind of like, like, like people like, cue that. Like hips under yeah. the bar. They think that is the yeah. cue that people use to be able to lift more weight. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, I, but if we're I talking her first, go ahead. No, no. I'm sorry. I, I think that just uh, just real quick, I just want to get this out. Like I, I think like the initial reaction to that is like as, as you're coming out of the hole, like the hips usually shoot back first. And that's going to be associated with mutation of the sacrum. And like you're basically just trying to like compress everything, right? Um, so you'll see like, I think the uh, the initial it's like that's where we have to like I like the way that you're talking about this stuff because there's layers upon layers of things that are happening right so it's like I would assume that the initial response would be to shift the hips back mutate the sacrum which is going to be associated with more lumbar lordosis but then there's going to be like maybe they've been taught a compensatory like tucking under to prevent that strategy so it's like yeah who the hell knows like what we're actually seeing by the yeah. time we see it. The reality is, is that we could probably like, and I've actually thought about this is like, you know what I could do is I could probably teach a whole weekend course, just going through all of these different squats and here's exactly what's happening. And, you know, looking at all that. the different scenarios. Um, but to make this a productive hour, here's what, and, and knowing that the goal, I don't want to jump down the rabbit hole of like, oh. let's look at every possible thing that could happen. Um, mm -hmm. I'm more than happy to do that. I just don't know if this is the platform to, uh, to accomplish that. Um, so let's, let's look at it this way, right? So we know we're going to have a break at the, there's going to be a limiting factor at the hip and it could vary. And a large portion of that is going to be dependent on technique. If somebody rounds their back, then that makes the back more likely to do it. If their knees cave in, cave out their width or something is wrong, they could be putting themselves in a position where they don't have good mechanics at the glutes or not as good a mechanics uh, at the um, at the adductor. So uh, one of the common things, you know, is the, the, the knees cave, the valgus, right? And so there's a lot of there's a lot of, you know, theories out there of like, oh, you know, this is it. So it's, it's a weak glute meet or it's a weak VMO or you should just push your knees out or you need to widen like all these other things. And when I see these things that I always go back to the mechanical model and look at why is that a solution to the physics problem? Right. Mm -hmm. So because there's there's no mechanical advantage to pushing a body upward in the squat to valgusing the knees. So what is going on there from an internal tension perspective? So when we see that, that means, well, the only thing that would benefit by bringing that knee closer in line is the adductor. Right. You know, for the for the you know, for the main portion. 
um, is, is that that guy is doing a little too much work. Um, and when I say it's doing a little too much work, I think it's important to understand that if you are actually going to bias a squat position to work more AD ductor, it would be wider. But when it's having to work in excess to the glutes, it pulls the knees in. We see more, we see the adduction movement being exaggerated as the hip extension is occurring, mm-hmm. if that makes sense, right? Because it's doing, it's doing both, right? Whereas the glute plane, and I think this is a often misunderstood thing, is the glute plane actually comes and adducts a little bit as like, as, as you come up into hip flexion, we tend to squat like out like this. We have to, right? It's the only way that we fold. But if we were to actually look at like how we were going to line the glute fibers up, they actually kind of come in. Like if you think of like, what's a good glute stretch, you pull your hip in towards your abdomen, right? Like, so it's, it has an antagonistic relationship with the psoas. So if you think of shortening the psoas, that's lengthening the glute and, and vice versa. So it, like when we get into these excessively wide squats that we need to, to be able to fold enough, we can be disadvantaging the glutes, right? Which then can change what the limiter is. Because if I have less glutes and it's only then, you know, it's, it, then I have a weaker uh, pelvis to femoral hip extension, then maybe the spinal thing is like, okay, that's not going to be the limiting factor at all, right? But if I'm able to squat in a position where I'm able to use my glutes and my adductors extremely efficiently, then maybe then the erectors become the limiting factor, right? So there's a, mm-hmm. there's a lot to go into play. So I think it's important when we kind of look at like what's going to be the limiting factor, understand that it's going to change. But the question I think that we're really trying to get is how do we make it quads? Yeah. That's, and, the, and main, that's the main question, right? But the op, maybe not the opposite question, but somewhat opposite is how do we make it all glutes? And in the research, you see that that is a widened stance with an extra rotation to femurs. But that's a lot. That's that's yours. If I if I kind of digested what you were saying correctly, you're saying that that might just be an artifact of EMG from a short yeah. from a okay. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, is go ahead. No, I was just gonna say if you could just explain that real quick because it, it was something you mentioned on. Uh, on the Israel podcast that you did with Israel, that uh, you talked about just a, a shortened uh, position is just going to increase EMG activity. And that would be one of the reasons why we probably don't want to always just take those numbers for what they are. Can you explain that just a little bit, if I understood that correctly? Yeah, so when we're looking with EMG, it's very important that we're understanding, like, okay, we're, we're, we're looking at electrical amplitude that's going into this tissue, which doesn't necessarily mean anything about tension or mechanical stress. So... If a muscle has to be shorter, right, more motor units have to be shortened under the same amount of force. So if I literally pull the muscle out of the body and it's like, okay, I'm going to put 10 pounds of tension on this thing in this position, and then I'm going to put 10 pounds of you know tension on it in this position, just to maintain that degree of shortness, more sarcomeres have to be active in that short position, right? So when we're looking at amplitude of EMG we are going to see like more activity under the same relative tension in a short position versus a lengthened position. Okay. Now when we're doing exercises, we're not talking about even tension throughout the the course. So it's very important that we look at EMG. We say, what can this data actually tell us? And I think that's really funny. A lot of times you look at a study and it'll just compare the amplitudes across different muscles and it's like, but okay, 
I want to see where that amplitude potential is instead of saying, well, this was the amplitude of the adductor and this was the glute. I want to say, okay, if you actually measured the maximal potential of the, adi- of the adductor through its specific motion and then the glute through its specific range of motion, right. how do these then relate? That would be really cool data to have, you know, knock on wood getting that soon. But when we just look at comparing like, well, in this position, this is, seems to be high and this seems to be low, but it's in relationship uh, to mm-hmm. what? And does that does that mean anything, right? And I can tell you playing around with these things, it's, it's really easy to fudge the system. So in an adducted, It's super external, dirty yeah. data. Yeah. So like, like placement is huge. So, and that's the other thing is as you externally rotate the hips, you are activating more of those deep external rotators, which are right underneath the glutes. So you're going to get a lot more signal noise and stuff going on at, you know, from all of those deep external rotators as you're going into that position. Um, and then, you know, we have to look at if we are doing that, what mentally does that change in terms of a person's intent? on the movement, especially in an uneducated population in terms of what they're supposed to be doing, right? Because if they are simply, especially for a lot of people that have tight hips, if they're just simply having to push out more, that's that's now a factor of like, okay, we put you in this wide stance, but it's not really a stance that you should be in. Like you're actually going to have to be co-contracting to a greater degree in these positions just to maintain this look or, you know, position of a squat. Um, so... I always prefer to look at these things. Um, this, this is this is the way my brain works. As I look at the mechanical model, uh, and I say, okay, if I was the nervous system, what would be the most efficient tool for the job? Right, because it's essentially what our nervous system is trying to learn. Every rep we do is, is like, how do I do this and expend less energy? Right. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm looking in the mechanical model, doesn't match the EMG data, then I'm like, okay, what's going on here? Why is this? Why is this happening? Um, and that's kind of where I get, um, I don't want to ramble too much on EMG, but so if, so if, if you we were going to set up, this, if you were going to set up a squat to max out the glutes, that would not be a wide stance, externally rotated squat. No. So yeah, I mean, it, it would be more of a narrow squat, right? Um, and that's going to be what we visually look at as hip flexion less flexion because the the leg just isn't going to go like as far back right but it's going to come in so this is a, a tricky thing and i think a lot of people screw this up is when they look at the hip joint they treat it kind of like the shoulder joint but we have this neck of the femur which i'll grab that too and the the, the neck of the femur basically is a really cool mechanical solution to the problems that we are trying to solve in terms of creating force to the legs for gait motion and stuff like that. So, you know, the whole purpose of the the femur basically being offset from the pelvis is to create a different relationship between the muscles that are pulling on this side and the muscles that are pulling on this side because it essentially shifts their moment arm or their leverage. So basically what we end up getting, right? So if this is, now you're looking like posterior, right? So by pushing this lever out here, we're essentially creating a greater moment armor leverage for all of these propulsion muscles back here. That, whereas if I was, if this didn't exist, if this was like a shoulder coming in here, because it would be so close, I would have a lot of compression to be able to produce any propulsion-based motion. So this is very different than shoulder mechanics. And people just kind of look like at the 2D, you know, cartoon is like, oh, well, that's a straight line there. So it just must go here. And in reality, it's like, this is super important. This little L-shaped thing that we have at the top of the femur 
drastically impacts the mechanics and the force needed by the, I'll say, adductor flexor pattern muscles versus the, you know, extensor pattern muscles, right? Which, if you think about it, we don't do a lot of backwards running. Yeah, it, right? and that's huge for us getting up and walking around as, as apes. But if you, if you flip that around posteriorly, so yeah, flip that pelvis around to the posterior. Yeah, yeah. So if you actually rotate the femur right there, mm-hmm. you're going to, and then you're gonna, you're gonna essentially, you're going to put the glutes in an at more advantageous position for contracting, right? Or would you the disagree? Lateral, the lateral rotators. Well, yeah. Well, here's the, Glute the mean. thing is, is that so like all right, let me get a a full pelvis here to make this angle a little bit better, right? So if we think of the glute fibers, right, we have like coccygeal fibers that are coming down here, yeah. right? And then we're all the way up to the, the sacral fibers up here. So there's the, the glute max has three divisions of itself, right? That kind of go through and it comes down, we got these two insertion points. And the thing that I think is important um, when we look at those muscles, and again, this is where the like the, the anatomy books that we learned from, you, got, you just did a course uh, here in Denver with anatomy, right? But if, if I make a really basic thing, we say like, okay, imagine that this is the, the sacrum lined up here. And then this is everything from where it inserts into the TFL and then down to the femur, right? As people think that like, okay, they see the, this drawing of like these fibers that just look like this, like, oh, it just, it just must go that way. But in reality, what it's doing is it's functioning like a giant pennate and yeah. it's going this way, right? You see somebody's glute, like if somebody puts tension in their glutes, what's the first like conformational change to its shape that you see? It goes in, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it, gets, it gets narrow, right? And it starts producing levers to look more like straight extensors right away, right? But if we draw all our anatomy books based off of a, you know, a corpse lying prone, just flaccid, it really looks like, oh, wow, these are just like these big external rotators. But this, as soon as we put tension in those things, we see like, okay, this is not nearly as much of a external rotator you know type force as much as it is a very um a very hip extension type force and the other thing to consider with that is is this hip extension force as it comes through here if we were to externally rotate right all of a sudden those forces become more like this rather than like this right and we're also pre-shortening them so we'd essentially be taking away some of their leverage okay so Two things, and, and the other thing to consider with this, and this is going to be hard for you guys to visualize, but the other thing with this neck, right, is it prevents us from essentially moving into a pattern that is just like this. Like if you see somebody run, they don't look like that, like the robot from iRobot that just runs like yeah. square, right? What this allows us to have kind of this like arcing gated, like that's what gives us our gait motion, right? So that we can run without starting our inner thighs on fire, okay? So... <laughs> So if we look at that motion, it's like, okay, the glute, if we look at the way it's set up, as this were to come around this way, it makes a perfect, nice little stretch to use the leverage of that femoral neck to come and bring this around, right? But it uses it basically to line up to optimize the extension forces. If it starts doing this, right, one, it's just going to jam. So the one thing you could, like, anybody can test this. You don't need to study for this. If you externally rotate the hip, you lose hip extension. Just the range of motion gets just gets cut down. Okay. Mm-hmm. So like if you put the booty band thing on your knees and you do a glute bridge and then you do one without it, 
It's a different range of motion. As soon as we start applying abduction or extension that is in excess of the plane of the glute motion, you actually lose range, which if we're looking at how do we maximally load a tissue, it needs to be as close to its direct plane of motion as possible. So, and if we're talking about hypertrophy, we're going to bias more towards the length and position, especially for a squat, right? There's no sense in worrying about the activation at the top of the squat. Because you're not getting shit. You're not getting anything, right? You know. So you would use a glute kickback for that? Like if you're, just for people that can't see, right? So if you were going to, if you wanted to train the glute in the shortened position, you would use like a glute kickback or what would that look like? Yeah, right. I mean, so yeah, you're looking at like your your hip thrust, your glute bridge, a kickback, anything where the extension portion of that is the thing that's under load. Now, when we say kickback, there's a million versions of kickbacks. The problem with most kickbacks is you don't have enough pelvic stability to yeah. accommodate the amount of force that you can produce through the glute. Um, and every kickback machine ends up being a leg extension machine. And the the last portion of it, which is sucks because that's the only reason you're using that machine is the end of hip extension. And when you get to the end of them, they all just turn into a, a leg extension. And uh-huh. so, um, <clears throat> you know, I mean, to be honest, one of my favorite things is like those multi-hip machines, you know. Because you can kind of adjust your position, actually, so you don't have to necessarily go through the straight plane of hip extension that you would in, say, a a bridge where you're just stuck in kind of like that single pattern. Um, But that's essentially, yeah, if we're doing short position, we need to somehow challenge it there. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with doing a like a 45 degree back extension thing, doing hip extension there. You'll never get as short a position bilaterally as you will unilaterally but we can say that for both positions in almost every single muscles but for, in terms of hypertrophy perspective you know a lot of times we're going to use the bilateral stuff just from a you know time and effort uh perspective right so and it does how much of a difference does it make to get like that last two degrees of range of motion versus getting you know being able to properly load like 90 percent of the range um, I think we can argue that, you know, the majority of your volume is still going to be based towards bilateral movements um, for some of these things. Um, and so you wouldn't use you wouldn't use like an accommodated resistance squat to do like for max whatever. If you're trying to max high pressure for the glutes, that wouldn't be a choice that you would that you would use. Yeah. All right. And, and this is this is I think this is a good thing because I see this a lot. Um, so whether it's a squat a deadlift, a pull, whatever, right? Is if we're going to use accommodating resistance for something, it needs to be paying off in terms of like more tension in the muscle versus just like more compression on the spine and and more stability requirements, right? And so if we look at a squat, even a hack squat, right? Like it doesn't matter how many bands that you put on there. At the top, it is just, it is an insignificant load, Mm -hmm compared to those levers of hip extension, right? The only thing that you are doing is just putting a tremendous amount of axial load on you, which is just gonna provide more systemic and neural fatigue, more joint compression. So if anything, all it's gonna do is make you less efficient in that session, right? It's just gonna fatigue you. It's gonna fatigue you faster versus just using an exercise that loads it with very little systemic demand. Like if I'm designing an exercise for hypertrophy, it's like, how can I most efficiently apply load to this tissue, right? Like, so that's essentially, so I try, like, I want to use my body's levers against itself the best possible way to load that tissue, because that means I have to put the least amount of stress through every other joint and every other tissue, if that makes sense. Now, if we're talking about an athlete, 
that's totally different, right? Because they need like what they're trying to train for and the way they need to handle and produce force, totally different, right? So, and I don't know if necessarily that we want to go down that rabbit hole, but a lot of people automatically think that like squatting is going to transfer to the vertical jump, and I, it, this is I haven't dove super deep into that literature, but when you see people with crazy vertical jumps, like they don't initiate that movement with, they're not like squatting to depth and then jumping, they're hinging. Yeah. Well, I mean, if we're talking about from a strength perspective, I think, yeah, if we make any muscle in that chain stronger, it'll contribute. But if we're talking about movement, you have to look at a vertical jump is a, like a large part of that is generating momentum of the torso and using that as like a, using that as a source to carry you through space. Right. Which is, not which is not something that we're really doing in a squatting motion like if you're squatting and you're like you're able to like throw the load like well you're obviously like not really squatting like like at that point in time i mean sure there's time for speed work and stuff like that for acceleration but very different between when we're basically trying to apply force between two points being the bar and the floor versus like okay i'm trying to basically fling my torso through the air to basically help carry me through Right. You know, so that's 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 very different. So in one, the goal is to generate as much momentum in the trunk as possible to be able to improve that. Now, if you were to, say, do a jump test where somebody basically just pressed to the floor. So it's like, say, they kept their torso the same. They would just just like mm -hmm. try to jump their ass in the air and like leave their torso position. That would be a better way of saying, like, OK, how much is the squat applying to just this ability to like generate dynamic force in that direction, right? If you wanted to have more similar like motor patterns in terms of, you know, what's going on. Perfect. That was the, yeah, that's been essentially because you see people make this argument for squatting for the vertical jump. And I'm like, I don't know, how are you squatting? I could make the argument that a box squat would probably be better for training the vertical jump as it's tested than you messing with people's levers and trying like a front squat or changing center of mass, because that's not, that's, that's getting more and more opposite for that test. Yeah. I mean, when it comes down to performance stuff, really what you're trying to do is like one is you got to figure out, okay, what's the limiting factor here? Is it strength? Is it speed? Is it range? I mean, in, in, in the case of a vertical jump, I mean, sometimes it's range of motion, right? Like the degree with which somebody can like flex and extend their spine throughout that movement. Like when we're focusing on generating momentum, having an extra, you know, few degrees that you can extend your spine, you know, that's a lot of energy potential there. Um, you know, and then the other thing I always like to get to these things is like, but is that, you know, when we're talking about performance, vertical jump, yeah, we use this, you know, they use it at the combine or whatever to measure things. And, and then it's looking at these qualities of like, okay, are we wasting our time trying to train that versus just actually doing the stuff that would get better for their sport? Well, and I know there's strength coaches listening to this, right? And so if you're, if you're a volleyball strength coach, like literally your job can depend on you increasing that vertical jump test for your athletes just because it's so important because yeah. it's such an important metric for them it's it's basically their only metric um and and that so then then the test becomes yeah that test might not be helpful but everybody cares about the test so just, essentially then we have to start training for that test and we what i what i've seen is that you you get this you almost get this drop you, like the diminishing returns right like once you've squatted a certain amount, it's probably not going to help you on that test anymore because um, you've checked that strength box, as you talked about, with the limiters. Um, yeah. 
basically you have to have a certain power to weight ratio. And then once that once basically once you get to that, having having more strength isn't necessarily going to improve that. So. And that's the best way to probably improve somebody's vertical jump is to hey lose some weight. That'll that'll, yeah. that'll work pretty well. Yeah, um, get strong and then and and then nail the technique. That's that's a, that's the simple 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 process. Fun tangent for people who want to be athletic. Not me. Not not Ryan. And, and no, I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, and so now transition that. So we've 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 talked about using the squat for potentially or really not using the squat as a glute max exercise. Uh, so that now transitioning this to the heart of the discussion. Do we want to use quads or do we want to use a squat as a as a quad exercise? How do we how do we how would we go about that? Okay, so. Let's let's look at the conditions of you know getting the quads to be more like or a squat to be more quad right. So there's a couple things that we're looking at. One, okay, range of motion, right? So it's like, okay, what do we need to do to a squat to be able to get to full knee flexion without compromising any of the things that we said at the hip, right? So if you need to take an excessively wide stance, that's going to create weakness in the hip chain, which then may affect your ability to make the quads a limiting factor, right? If you simply can't push your knees forward enough to be able to get the hip flexion, then obviously we're not even sufficiently training the quads with the, the squat, right? And then we can talk about the leverage. It's like, okay, what's actually under more torque at that position of the squat? Is it the knee or the hip? Because some people can get to a fully flexed knee, but it's still a very hip dominant squat when we look at the shift of leverage, right? They just have, a, they have great foldability, um, but they still aren't driving their knees further away from their center of mass uh, than their hips. And then another thing that people often forget is when you look at somebody's foldability, it's actually looking at how much range of motion is occurring at each joint and which one is the end and initiating point. Because a lot of people that can do a full squat with good foldability may actually reach terminal knee flexion. And then what they do is they're able to continue sitting and then come up, right? And that's very different than your squat ending at terminal knee flexion and then it is knee extension that is initiating that movement. And if our goal is to train quads, that's what we would be focusing on is we want the quads to be the beginning and end of every repetition, right? We don't want the quads to be this thing that comes on, you know, a third of the way up, right? Mm -hmm. um, so when you're looking at somebody's squat, there's all these different problems that we can start to solve. And I don't think that it is beyond pretty much anybody to be able to make their quads the limiting factor. But what I see is people struggling to make a good quad dominant squat because of the word squat. And they just, but what basically what happens is they just try and turn it back into a squat, either because of load or the motor patterns and things like that. Um, By that, you mean more of like a low bar technique, so more torso angle forward. Well, yeah, so that, that'll be the thing is, is like, all right, let's give them a heel elevation. But then the first thing they do is they drive their butt same back, right? Yeah, just, yeah. Right. So it's like you're, you're doing the same movement, but, you know, on a now wedge. Just on an incline, right? yeah. yeah. Well, right. Right. So uh, like that's the well, we have four studies now that some of them like they give people a weightlifting shoe and some of them show a change in torso length or torso angle. Some of them don't. Um, but it does seem to be if you look at the literature, your ability to keep an upright torso it does seem to be ankle dorsiflexion. So if you can get more ankle dorsiflexion, you can keep a more upright spine, 
But this is the thing we were talking about before you got on the call. Nobody uses their max ankle dorsiflexion anyways. So if you give them weightlifting shoes, you're, you're essentially creating more room for movement, but they're not going to use it because they don't use it anyways. Yeah. So the, the, if you use a heel elevation, the whole, you have to take advantage of it and change the goal of the squat becoming a knee forward. Like that's, that's your holy centric. This is like I'm driving the knee forward. Right. So um, if, if it's still and that's why I said, like the limiting factor ends up being people are still trying to do a squat. Right. Mm -hmm. Which in reality, a quad dominant squat, just because we're calling it a squat, it's it's for some people, it's such a drastically different exercise that if they try to mentally apply their squatting technique in any way, shape or form, they just end up not utilizing any of the tools that they used to set themselves up to be able to get more quads out of it. Right. Um, you know, so the, the the goal would be to position yourself in a way where you get to terminal knee, knee flexion. That is where you reverse actioning the motion and you're trying to push the knees further forward. So in terms of your center of mass, your knees are at least equal, if not further away from the the center of mass than than your hip joints. Right. Um, and when we talk about limiters, like, OK, like as we start to bring the, the, the spine up more then yeah, the erectors are gonna be much less likely to be a limiter, right? So then it all comes down to the hip musculature. So in a quad dominant squat, the erectors are almost never gonna be a limiter unless somebody is just training like a jackass in their like lumbar flexing, extending or, or whatnot. Um, or the other issue is uh, people that dive bomb because if we're, we, we dive bomb down, which means basically you're just like going down really, really fast. We have to understand that as we start to reach terminal ends of like, you know, these flexions at the knee and the hip, the then the spine is subject to all of that momentum and that pushes people into flexion. Um, so a lot of times if we're focusing on a quad dominant squat, it's much more important to have a slower tempo, especially in the bottom quarter, so that you basically can control that that terminal position is the knee flexion, right? And you're not letting the bar momentum increase the, the the resistance on the spine okay so if anything we want to limit bar momentum more in a quad bias squat right because we're not we're not trying to maximize torque on the hips or the spine now in a hip dominant squat when we're talking about performance based stuff well overcoming that momentum like the, there's a skill set to that there's there's importance to that right but for a quad dominant one the last thing that we want to do is allow just the physics of the bar movement to all of a sudden start putting tension other places because that's where my body's going to then try and reverse action to initiate that squat up right so tempo is just a it's just a huge factor for a lot of people there as well um so when we look at the solutions the thing that works for everybody in some way shape or form provided they actually use the implement tends to be a heel elevation and that's even for people that can do a full squat simply because it gives you the ability to drive the knee further away from the center of mass i will say that um there's a point of diminishing returns though for how upright you can be because what happens is if you sit too upright you essentially destabilize the movement and then you just can't produce a lot of force you feel like you're falling back or, or whatever um so it's which the goal gets into is where not, do you, where do you put the bar right yeah i was the, just gonna say because because the component like if you if you zurcher that then you can then you don't fall back like whereas if you have the bar on your back then it, that becomes a problem so where where are you where are you gonna put the bar yeah 
So um, usually, like if, if I'm going to put somebody through a quad dominant squat, I'm always going to use a high bar position, right? So, I mean, we'll put it this way. From a hypertrophy perspective, like I'm never going to program a low bar squat because it's, it's basically the whole point of that is to allow you to put the maximum amount of load on your body with the least amount of load on the levers. Um, and it's also going to be the one where you have to flex at the hip more because you have the smallest lever towards the hip, right? So if my goal is to minimize the, the hip flexion from any more than I need it to, a high bar squat and a heel elevation is going to accomplish it for the majority of people's anthropomorphic, especially if we're talking about a significant heel elevation, right? A squat shoe is designed to help people that are already pretty damn good squatters mm -hmm. right it's so if you're if you or if you have a hard time getting full depth squat and you can't get a lot of quad out of it a tiny little heel elevation is is not yeah. going to make that not make it also they're also designed for catching the bar in front of your body yes. from, or, yeah. or directly above it so yeah yeah and another thing i don't like is like you know, I'm a I'm a functional footwear guy, right? Like I like the ugly shoes, right? So all of your squat shoes are pointed in the front. And if we look at like the way the, the, the foot affects the muscle recruitment, right, is when our toes are open, that tends to help us in terms of activating the quads. So the last thing I want to do for a quad dominant Boxing. squat is, is I mean, I, that's just not good for your feet, just like like in general right but if you think about it the your ability to apply force of the forefoot like there's no reason that you would want your toes you know coming together you would want them splayed so using a significant heel wedge with the ability to actually plant your forefoot is going to give you better stability and you know you're likely going to be able to activate your quads a lot better right if you actually think of foot mechanics the foot cinches at the end of gait right when the hip is extended knee flexed right and it splays at the strike Okay, if we're at the bottom of a squat, right, we're trying to, like, we're trying to absorb the strike force, you know, you know, not exactly, but it's more similar to that in terms of the muscular reaction that we're looking for, right? Well, even with the tailless, like, that's what's going to unlock that ankle joint, right? It's like when you're, yeah. when, when you, which is the other thing that people say, like, wow, this is getting great. Like, screw your feet out. I'm like, no, dude, like, if you want a quad dominant squat, you don't want to screw, you want, you want to evert the foot. So that you can get into more ankle dorsiflexion. Yeah, right. So, well, yes and no. Here's what I will say with that, right? Is if we're talking about terminal knee flexion, right? We like you need that, okay? Mm -hmm. or, or I'm sorry, not term. Um, if we're talking about terminal ankle dorsiflexion, we need that. I prefer if I'm going to put a bunch of load on somebody. I would rather be able to load that ankle in a more neutral position with less tibial rotation because that's going to be just a structurally safer place for them to load their quads, mm -hmm. right? We aren't we 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 shouldn't be putting all of that force through the joint in its like end of end of end of end ranges, right? We're starting to get closer and closer to jujitsu and less of you know like hypertrophy training as we do some of those things. So that's where what I'll see is like if somebody can. If somebody can achieve like a, a quad dominant squat, but they're still getting kind of like that foot and tibial movement at the end of like, I'm going to bring you up on a heel elevation just so that you can accomplish that knee flexion without having to have that movement to the foot, especially because we're in a bilaterally constrained movement. If I was running, I have, every, I have the rest of my body to be able to realign and take the stress off of some of those joints. But in a 
bilateral movement, I mean, and this goes for hack squats and all that stuff too, the last thing I want to do is start putting all these indirect forces through the joint when I could just say, hey, let's just put you up 10 degrees in heel elevation, and then you'll hit that knee flexion in more of a neutrally uh, dorsiflex position without having to have you know, the, the pronation of the foot come into the play to get that last bit of dorsiflexion. Which is why you probably don't want to load a pistol squat up super heavy. Because uh, yeah. well, that's what you're seeing now with with people being quarantined is you're seeing a ton of, you know, a ton of end range pistol squatting, which mm, yeah. I don't know. I would say like, uh, I think with a pistol squat, it's safer because your body gets to move, right? Mm-hmm. So there's not a lot, like your body moving, like, you know, twisting through space, there's not a lot of resistance to overcome, right? I mean, I would still say it's not the best thing to do, especially if you're coming down, like if you're dive bombing into Ooh, it, yeah. a lot of people are, but if you were doing controlled pistol squats and there's that little bit of movement in there, you know, that's much safer than being in a bilateral movement where the body can't compensate for that, right? And so all there's a lot more joint force and shear going through um, the, the ankle, the knee, the hip, and everything when it's like, okay, the body can't move to assist this, right? But in a, like if you were doing like a suspension, like, you know, whether like type thing, you, you'll see people, their body just like, it just, it swings under no resistance to just accommodate those joint mechanics. Um, and so controlled, you know, I'm not going to, you know, put the fear mongering out there and be like, oh, it's going to blow up all of your, your joints. It's like, no, it's probably, it's probably fine. Right. So, but if you were doing it in a, a leg press or a squat or a hack squat and be like, yeah, that's probably stress on your joints that we don't need to do to accomplish hypertrophy. And so, Use the use the wedge to get more ankle dorsiflexion, bar bar in the high bar position to essentially maximize load. So because if you put it on the front or you put it in a zercher, now all of a sudden you have to struggle. You're gonna have a different limiter there and just yeah. keeping the barbell upright. Yeah. So as soon as we put the bar in the front of the body, we start incorporating a lot more of the spine. Um, so we're just going to be creating more systemic fatigue and more of a neurological and coordination challenge, right? So in terms of hypertrophy, like if I can accomplish, if I can accomplish the biomechanics that I want for the movement without increasing the systemic or neurological demand, that's definitely vital. So like, for instance, somebody who has to be very anthropomorphically disadvantaged for me to say, all right, we're going to do this with the front squat. And if they have a safety bar, they're never going to do the front squat. They're going to do the, the safety bar, you know, squat or, or whatever it may be. Um, because the last thing I want to do is introduce something else that could be a limiting factor, especially when it comes to a motor pattern perspective, right? Because we were talking about, you know, at the very beginning that, you know, the, the skill set and then just like as soon as you flex that spine a little bit, that's a drastic, drastic change. And that happens way more in a front squat or a zercher squat than it does in a in a back squat, right? So high bar, it, to me, is like that's the, by far and above the best bar position for a quad dominant squat with a heel elevation. So the last component in here in terms of what we have control over is, is then the width of the stance that you choose, right? Um, and uh, I, did, did you see, I did a webinar on quad dominant squatting. It was like an hour or whatever, but I went through all these positions. Um, but what typically tends to be best, and this is a huge mistake I think people make when they use a heel wedge, is they set the wedges where they normally squat. Like mm. the, where they would normally put their feet, they just set them there, not realizing that because their knees are going to translate further forward, that, they, that it needs to be like pulled back and in, like more under the butt. So if you were like to take that angle 
you need to like pull it back towards your butt because that's where your feet are going to be at the bottom of the squat. So what happens is people go up on a wedge and then the, and then with the, the, like the wedge trying to push the knees forward and out more, it ends up seeing like they're trying to squat way too wide. So it's more of kind of um, what, you know, people call like a duck stance when you're using a significant heel elevation where it's like, all right, you're not actually that wide, but you're essentially, your feet are very externally rotated or toes pointed out so that your femur angle actually ends up being kind of like that abducted position to allow for sufficient folding. That makes sense. And that's um, why you guys created the solo wedges so that you can yeah. do that. Because if you have just one wedge, you can't really make that happen. Your feet are going to be, you're, you're going to be off center on the wedge. Yeah, well, I mean, you can still do it. The problem is, is that the plane of the wedge ends up not managing the plane of the foot, and that actually encourages like that, like eversion and tibial rotation. It's just, it's just not a very like doing a foot angled out squat on a single wedge is not very favorable mechanics for the ankle and the knee, right? So being able to have the wedge in the same plane as the foot goes back to just what we were talking. I want to accomplish that dorsiflexion in a neutral position if I'm putting basically what we would consider a super physiological load, you know, through it for the most part in a bilateral movement. Now, what you can do with a single wedge is you can use a really big uh, incline like a, a really high-pitched wedge, so that you essentially don't need to have your hips abducted. So there's a lot of people that can do like a basically toes straight forward, almost like narrow stance squat with a huge wedge, but they end up being fairly upright because they don't need to flex the hip very much. So you would have to be able to have a wedge that was high enough. What's high enough? 30? Well, it's going to depend on the person, right? So, but yeah, if you can't accomplish it with 30, then you probably just shouldn't be squatting for quads. Um, you know, <clears throat> and you look like something out of Men in Black or something like that. Um, so, yeah, so basically this is what it, it needs to be high enough that you can get to knee flexion without having to open your hips. That's, that's, that's how high it needs to be. What that number is will vary on an individual. Some people will be able to hit it at, you know, you know 20. Very few people will be able to hit that at 10. Almost everybody should be able to hit it at 30. Right. Um, because you just simply don't have to flex at the hip that much. So it's perfectly within your range of like hip flexion in kind of this this straight plane in front of you. Um, but if you are looking at a uh, if you are looking at a quad dominant squat that is more squat like what our traditional squat is and we'll say maybe is a little bit more biomechanically sound. That's where that kind of duck foot on the solo wedge squat is going to be the most optimal because you're basically reducing any chance that the hips are going to be uh, a limiting factor there because you're putting them in kind of a more biomechanically neutral uh, position as well. So you're using the, the feet out to turn it into more of a glute focus squat? Is that, did I hear that correctly? Or I'm, no, I'm, 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 I'm using the foot out to basically allow somebody the, the, the biomechanics to be able to fold at the hip a little bit more. Right, because I, I don't want them to be like folding, folding. But what I don't want is is that their ability to fold becomes a limiting factor of full knee flexion. And for most people, they need just a little bit of a little bit of abduction to be able to fold into a point of full knee flexion. Um, the other thing is is that when we get to the super super high heel elevations, stability itself. I mean, it's like wearing a pair of stilettos, right? Stability itself can start to become a challenge. Yeah. So. 
usually what happens is is like the the best in terms of practicality in terms of stability setup and everything happens when we have kind of like that slightly externally rotated heel elevated like wedge system where somebody can get full knee flexion in a place of optimal hip mechanics where that's not really going to be a limiting factor so it's not loading the glutes more it's basically allowing their job to be easier and for that motion to be you know essentially always going to end at the knee rather than at the hip Mm-hmm. Right. And if you, yeah, if you were to exaggerate that too much, then you would probably be doing the opposite at some point. Yeah, I mean, in terms of squat mechanics, period, I always like, I always prefer people like it's like once you find the width that you need for the range of motion, like no wider, right? Yeah. Like that, that's that, that's essentially this is essentially like wider is not necessarily better, unless then we're going to talk about going into biasing the the adductors. Yep. And then we could have this whole argument of like, but is the squat the best place to do that motion, right? You know, or, you know, is it something where it's like, well, okay, we could do some adductor squats, but we should probably only do like the bottom half of the motion really and should, how much should we load it here or whatever. Um, so tangent, but yeah. Well, it so just gets I'm weird like, thinking about the squat as an isolation movement. It just, it gets, it just gets really hairy, I think. And, and so that's what we're trying to do. What kind of, so you already talked about like, hey, I want you to go as narrow as you need, like as wide as you need to, but no wider, right? And that's already counterintuitive to people who are like, hey, man, well, I can lift a lot more weight if I widen my stance, right? Yeah. And so now weight on the bar, what kind of significant reductions are you seeing in terms of weight on the bar? Well, I mean, it kind of depends on where they're coming from on what their squat is, Right. Uh, but it's usually, it's usually fairly significant for somebody that is a hip dominant squatter. Like it's just, and the thing is, is that people don't understand that, you know, cause if you, if you think about it in terms of weight on the bar, your ego is always going to be crushed. And this is why I understand you like, okay, but it's technically more load on the quad, right. Or the same amount of load, but not as much as, as the hip. Right. And that's, again, goes back to where I say like the, mis- the biggest mistakes that people make with the stuff is they try to get it back to what their squat is, whether that's load, whether that's technique, whether that's the way the motion looks, whether that's just the the initiations that they're taking or the you know the you know the movement they're doing with their hips or knees, whatever it may be, um, you know, is is that the best way to get a quad dominant squat is to treat it like a completely different exercise. So whatever you squat in terms of load, it, it doesn't apply. It yeah, doesn't totally. apply any more than a bicep curl does to a bench press, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have, so this is, I think the biggest problem that we've run into. And so Ryan, your, your squad competition is what? Like, 545 or. Yeah. All right. So you take a guy with a, who's, who's a, who's a pretty good squatter, right? And now, now he's got to lift. It's a, it's a good yeah. You got to do 135 on the barbell, but it's still a similar motion that he associates with that other motion. Do you think, yeah. would you even attempt to do this with him or would you just pick a different exercise? That he wouldn't have well, that association. All right. So in a perfect world where I have everything that I need, like exactly. just like okay, cool. Like you know, you're um, in your you're in your gym where you got all your all your fancy tools, everything you want. You can make you can make the machine. Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in in those cases, a like a hack squat is going to provide some advantages that I just can't get in a squat. Because in a hack squat, I can also translate what we would call horizontal force. Meaning, like, so in a hack squat, I can be pushing, like, in the direction of my toes into that platform 
and like pushing my butt back into the seat at the bottom, mm-hmm. even though that's not the force that like moves it directly. So my my quads and my knee joint can actually contribute to the movement more by being able to push into those like fixed objects. So I can start translating indirect forces that are going to move that hack squat that are going to bias the quads even more. So if my goal was is like, look, you need to hypertrophy the quads and you can use anything that you want, right? And it's just the quads. Then I'm going to say, yeah, the hack squat is the goal. Um, And I think an important layer of context to add in this is that we are saying this is a one exercise instance. But what about the context where it's like, okay, I'm trying to hypertrophy the quads, but I also want X, Y, and Z, or I have this physique goal, or I need to do, like, I can only train this many times a week. You start putting all these limiters on here, and then I think it's like, well, okay, if we say that, that, like, using a a hack squat that you can adjust to get maximum knee flexion and execute that in the way is going to be the best way to train the quad in a lengthened position, awesome, cool. But it doesn't mean that's always the tool that you have to use because sometimes you may need to get quad and glute together because your goal is, you know, body composition or you're actually trying to train uh, the systemic systems or you don't have enough volume in your day to be able to do a hack squat and then also do a glute specific movement. You kind of got to be like, well, what can I get out of those today? Right. Or, you know, I need to actually be able to load my, you know, I'm trying to actually, you know, put some load through my spine today. So it comes down to the goal. If the goal is quads today, this one exercise hack squat king, but don't take that as that the only thing that you should ever do for your quads is a hack squat. Mm-hmm. And, and this is why, like in an untrained population, the squat is not the best exercise for the quads. It's not the best exercise for the glutes. It's not the best ex- exercise for the adductor magnus. But it's a it's a good, it's a decent exercise for all of them. And so yeah, it's you, good enough. It's good enough to cook to cook the goose. And so that's why you're never going to see differences. When, which drives me crazy in the ply literature. So they squat three times and then they add something else on. I'm like, dude, they already they already cooked it. They're done. Like you're not gonna you're not gonna see anything more from this in that population. Whereas if you start to get into someone like Ryan who has a 27, 28 FFMI and he wants to get his quads a little bit bigger, he's trying to he's trying to get out that last one or two percent. Then these type of tactics uh, might be really helpful. Yeah, you know, and so for him, you know. The more advanced you got a guy like him, that's where the programming, like the program design, like the art of that really comes into play, right? Um, and what I'm when I say art, I mean just science that we can't explain with applied research yet. So, <laughs> um, because well, what's going to affect his ability to train quads, a lot of it's going to be what ha- doesn't happen on that day or that doesn't happen on that set, right? Like how much spinal loading is he doing with his other stuff, you know? Because he, like when you get bigger and stronger, your ability to create systemic fatigue and stuff, this is just so much greater in some of these movements, which means from a hypertrophy perspective, their like cost to benefit ratio starts to drop significantly, especially if you're talking about somebody that can afford a lot of time training, right? Yeah, it's like you become you throw a couple more and of those, more. You become more and more danger to yourself, essentially, when you as you get stronger, and so yeah. you have to you and have then, to control yourself. Yeah, and he also has like just his motor patterns for that particular movement are really really good, which means you take like if you take him out of that, it's going to be a much bigger change 
Um, you know, both in stimulus, but also like a, a decrease in load or whatever, right? So we have our, our own version of, of Ryan, which is Adam Miller, right? Who's like a top five power lifter in his, his weight class or, or whatever, right? Um, and, you know, if he makes a small change in his squat, it's very hard for him to not just try and do his regular squat in that mm-hmm. new in that, that that new environment right and oftentimes it's like the the skill and the consciousness that it takes to accomplish that is like man we we'll just go over on the hack squat right because then you don't even have yeah. to think about it right mm-hmm. so um you know could you do it absolutely if you don't have it yeah that's what you're gonna have to do but it's gonna be a lot easier if you're just able to put yourself into a controlled environment where then it's like hey you know how to like contract things hard cool just now you're just going to contract thing hard in this thing and the machine is going to do a huge portion of the job rather than you having to be like okay you know all that stuff you're really good at i need you to focus on not doing that right mm-hmm. which is with 135 pounds on your bar which is just like yeah so now like what would you say to someone who who says uh you know not that i know anyone like this but who says that they feel their quads just as much in you know, like a more of a forward lean type of squat or whatever the case may be. Does that, do you care at all about feelings? Um, that's a really good way to phrase that question because that makes it very easy for me just to say, no, <laughs> I, I tend not to care about people's feelings. In any way, um, yeah. Yeah, in any way, shape or form, but more, especially when it comes to the gym. Um, and, you know, when it comes to sensation, uh, the, there's a lot that could be going on that can be like, what are you feeling? Like, how do we, that's probably the, one of the hardest things to quantify. Um, and it goes back to like, you know, the whole thing of like, what is mind muscle connection? There's a different sensation of a stretch versus, you know, pressure in the muscle versus, you know, it actually being short versus what actual muscle tension is versus just just an accumulation of, uh, metabolites or whatever. So there's all of this stuff that's like, falls under the feel category, right? Um, and sometimes it's just like, you know, managing a less stable joint requires, you know, a higher sensory to it, right? And so sometimes the fact that somebody really feels something can be a sign that they're doing it totally ass backwards or, you know, taking themselves in a position they shouldn't be. Um, and and then the other thing is it, it goes back to like the EMG thing. It's like, okay, but how do I know the magnitude of that feel? How do we gauge like you feel this here, you feel this here? right like okay if i take somebody on a leg extension versus a squat and i say like well which one of these do you feel on your quads more that doesn't necessarily relate to how well either of them is actually working their quads because they're so differently same thing for a hack squat or whatnot um and then their 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 actual intention of that can be can be huge too right because somebody could like and this is where i think like a, a lot of like advanced lifters or bodybuilders um can convince themselves that really crappy movements are good for them is because they have very good mind muscle connection. They're able to just contract what they want to is they can go in a crappy movement and say like, well, this is supposed to be for this muscle. So mentally, I'm just going to like try and force myself to pose this. Therefore, I'm going to, yeah, exactly. Right. They're just doing a big co-contraction. So they might, yeah, they might as well just pose or, or whatever. So there's a lot that goes into that feel thing where it's like, look, if it doesn't make mechanical sense, there, there's no amount of like, 
I, I don't know. Maybe you, you guys dig into the research. I don't know if there's a study that shows that your feelings help you grow muscle. But if they did, I think that there would be some people that were a lot bigger and a lot smaller. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm That's so good. Well, well played. Well so so you're, using, you're using physics as your ultimate determinant of w- what the exercise is doing. Yeah. Well, one is I know that I know that if it makes sense there that even if I don't have the ability to take advantage of all of that today, I know that by doing this movement, what my nervous system is going to do is it's going to adapt to that physics problem better. So, so for instance, you take a butt squatter, like a hip dominant squatter, and you throw them into a quad dominant squat. Their instinct is going to be to want to use their hips because they have strengthened their hips, they've hypertrophied their hips, they have motor patterns for those hips. But what's going to happen is through coaching and technique and that change of loading pattern is their nervous system is going to start to figure out that like, okay, for what I'm being asked to do here, now my glutes are not as good of a solution. And it's going to start changing the motor pattern. It's going to start getting better at the quad dominant squat because that's the physics problem that it has to solve. But somebody might still get in there and have like all sorts of weird feelings. And it's like, okay, that's fine. But if I keep presenting your body with this problem, right and i coach it appropriately you're going to get better at the solution and those sensations and those feelings are going to change yeah i think that's why you probably don't see a big difference when you get into the research of different loading patterns and heel wedges or whatever because they haven't been taught how to do it yet they haven't actually this is happening in a span of like four days it's like and you look at the even like some of them yeah it's the same same day. day Right. So it's like, yeah, even a, a two week familiarization phase, like whatever, that, that, that's not going to be enough to, to rewire a motor pattern that you drilled in since you were 14. But like even like that picture that I sent you from one of the, you know, I, the I pictures, they're not, diff- they're not, they're not the, different. Fr- the front squat was exactly the same thing as the back squat. Like it, it's, it's all, it's all the same. So it's like, no wonder we're not seeing difference in joint angles. Like they're just using whatever pattern they have to, to deal with the, the problem at hand. And it's, it's a very stereotypical pattern often. And it's, you know, takes time to change itself. Yeah, that's why I prefer to make a bigger jump in the environmental change so that it's a lot like because if if you just nudge it, it's very easy for them to try and use whatever yeah. they were doing for the other environment, like yeah. in this new position. So like if I'm going to if if somebody is like, man, I don't feel my quads, I don't feel my quads, I'm not going to put them on a small heel elevation, right? I'm going to put them on a massive heel elevation and then I'm going to give them a guide like you push your knee into this thing like that's that that's that's what you do right um you know and so they think you know like that's where putting somebody in a different exercise is often you know is often more advantageous too because they can just dis- disassociate from the other movement that well one of my thing i think i've been in my mind as a researcher i've been just like how how do we well, how are researching this question is not very helpful right now we're generally researching it and not trained people where there's just not there's not a lot to gain from any of these strategies anyways uh and so in my head i kind of want to take people who've gotten really big uh quantify that via ffmi and then who have not done a lot of machine training and i think those people exist now, I think that there's people who have gotten to high FFMIs, but they haven't ever used a hack squat before, right? And so then I'm like, all right, we have this hack squat machine. I take this person who's already big. Can I get more quad growth out of them via ultrasound at multiple points? So it's essentially, it's almost an efficacy trial in one population. And because they haven't done this before, their quads are already massive. They probably run out of runway on their squat, on getting them more massive on their squatting but they haven't really used machines before. So let's take this novel stimulus, 
for their quads and use that and see if we can get them, get them more bigger. Uh, and I think that's really the study that we want to see. We're just going to need a donation of about 100 hack squats. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, in the name of science. <laughs> Gazim, yeah. come on. Uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure we can get a grant for that. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I mean... Uh, so, Cass, one thing I, I think that we, we were emailing back and forth, this is a, it's a sentence in the literature which, I, which you were like, is that, a, is, that a, is that a real sentence? Is that an oxymoron? And, and so they, they said that they were like, well, the reason that someone's squat is going back is because their quads are not strong enough. And you want to you talk about that a little bit? Because they're probably going back because they like to go back and they don't want to use your quads. And so then they're – I'll let you take it. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that comes down to the, the body's ability to buffer and compensate, right? So, I mean, one, you could be going back just because you have that motor pattern, but you have strength there or whatever. But in a movement with as much freedom like the squat is what your body's going to do is it's going to approach every rep slightly different. Um, and, and I think we may have talked about this in the past that technically for a squat, there are essentially load thresholds where it becomes a different exercise. Mm. Um, yeah, totally. And I don't know if we've discussed that because the, the, this is where then all of a sudden we start talking about the, the hamstrings and the rec fem and how they do contribute to the movement and when you, when you need to. Um, because what, uh, what will happen is and you have a light squat, right? So it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's your, or you're working, you know, far away from your RIRRP is, that you're able to handle the hip extension and the knee extension with the basically the muscles that you know control those movements in isolation very easily. You fold and unfold. Okay. As soon as we start to get to the point where we're reaching the 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 load threshold at one of those joints, or we're doing it via fatigue, doesn't really matter what the mechanism is, but we're starting to get to a point where one of these is now becoming a weak link in the chain. The body has to solve the problem by either shifting your positions to reduce the torque at that joint if it has the capacity to increase it at the other. Um, but it may still be able to maintain simultaneous movement, meaning knee extension, hip extension, and the respectives are, are happening still at the same time. You're able to perform both of those actions at the same time. And that happens when somebody has the anthropomorphics that basically allow them to shift forward and back you know, as needed. Um, and when, when you watch people squat, like, every, like if it's a real squat, you know, with some real load, like those reps, if you really analyze them are not the same. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now we put a bunch of load on somebody and what we reach either via load or fatigue, the point at which that little anthropomorphic buffering is no longer sufficient. What happens is the body then needs to start finding ways to produce more torque at the individual joints during that movement. So your squat motion that was a simultaneous knee extension, hip extension motion now becomes a synchronized sector of, well, this was isolated knee extension and this was isolated hip extension because what it can do is if I stop the knee motion, the hamstrings can start contributing to hip extension. Mm -hmm. If I stop the hip extension, the rectus femoris can start contributing to knee extension. So those guys normally, they kind of have like this nice little co-contracty stability relationship. But then when it's needed, it's kind of like, oh, brakes, gas, 
on one side and then and then it'll switch so you will see that all of a sudden at a certain load you basically reach a torque threshold at one of the joints where it needs to bring a needs to bring in those two joint muscles and then mechanically it's a different lift a motor pattern wise it is a different exercise just by simply loading putting a certain amount of torque on one joint now makes it not a you know a both knee and hip simultaneous movement but it makes it kind of a like a series of both like two joint and single joint movements that's beautiful that was that was strong so if some in our current world someone doesn't have access to a hack squat they have access to a barbell what what are you going to do how are you going to say hey they're pretty advanced but maybe they haven't tried some stuff. What are you going to pick then? You don't have all the tools. You don't have all the tricks. Yeah. So, well, I'm going to have them do a high bar, heel elevated squat, likely with a like duck foot type stance. That's going to be my go-to. The coaching cues that I'm going to apply with that are that the goal is to drive the knee forward, right? And push the knee back. We are not trying to, like the goal is not to lower the bar. The goal is to push your knees forward, get your hamstring to touch your calves, and then that's the bottom of the motion. I don't care if you can flex more or lower more. The goal is to stop there and then reverse that action. Also, a thing I always throw in there because this is a mistake that people make is that once we get into that quad dominant squat where they're, we're not trying to fold over, they think that, well, okay, if I sit more upright, that must be better. So I try and like stay as vertical as possible. And what I tell them is to like, don't try and sit up straight, right? Let yourself fold, but with the goal of the knees going forward, right? Because they won't fold any more than they need to if they're trying to push the knees forward. But the mistake people will make is they will actually reduce their range of motion or the amount of load that they can use because they're destabilizing themselves trying to like like sit perfectly up straight. Because yeah. it's like, oh, this is quad dominant. So I'm going to do a hack squat, you know, without anything attached to my back. And so then they they essentially destabilize the movement or they, they're they're like co-contracting their erectors so that they actually do fail at the lower back, but not because of the load, but because they've just basically been doing like an isometric contraction yeah. with the low back like, the, the whole it's time. It's like actually more low back when you do it like that anyway. It's wild. Like you feel yeah. like your back will feel like shit after doing that, or you'll just have like a massive back pump because that's, yeah, that's sense- the limiter. Yeah, you're essentially doing metabolic work for your erectors while you're yeah. trying to do like strength yeah. work for your uh, for your quad. So, so what determines that? Because some people can do that. Do you think it's just anthropometrics at that point that that are allowing some people to stay more upright than others in that position? You're just trying to like force a round peg in a square hole. Yeah, I mean, you have to maintain center of mass. That's just the reality, right? Yeah. So the the torso position is all about maintaining center of mass. So as we as we push the knees forward and the butt comes forward, we're able to be more upright. Okay, but if you have a short torso versus a long torso, that's going to drastically change the angle, how long your femur is, right? So if I have a, yeah, like all sorts of things are going to impact that. But the basic thing is, is that between my body mass and the bar mass, that stuff has to stay over my midfoot, right? All I'm trying to do is articulate the the pelvis and the knees position under that center of mass. Right. So, so the big the big thing you're looking for is tempo on the bottom and that you don't necessarily care what the angle of the torso is. You just want it that's gonna take care of itself. You just want to see them initiate that movement with knee extension. 
they want to see him initiate the movement with the knee extension, right? And I want to see that they stop where knee extension ends. That's, yeah, like so that's if you're getting very, more, very important, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's uniformity yeah. with the hips and the knees. Like you need to see everything moving together. If you see like knees up, hips back, then it's like we know that we lost that that uh, the driver out of the quads. Yeah, we lost the adaptation yeah. well, we're, I mean, we're looking for. You will see, like, you will see as somebody fatigues in a very quad dominant squat, is they may start to push back a little bit. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Do you cut it? As, as long as they are still stopping at knee flexion, like that's that's the thing that stops the range, and then they are then they're going mm. back from there. I may let them continue because all they're essentially doing a drop set. Now they're overloading the right, right. Instead. So yeah. it's like they're just deloading the knee. So that just depends. Like, all right, what am I qualifying as as failure? Because right now they're just doing the mechanical equivalent to taking a little bit of load off the bar. They just have to be doing it with shifting their hips back. And this is where programming comes into play, right? Is, well, can I allow those reps? Or it's like, no, we're going to do some of that later or some hip stuff or spine stuff tomorrow so that we're cutting it here, right? Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's like, okay, once we're there, I don't want the glutes to start getting involved, but I still want quads. So get off there, go into the leg extension or, you know, like I'll, I find the solution to get the, the stimulus that fits both within the day and the, and the program that I'm wanting to. So it's not that once they start kicking back, if the quads are still doing the work, they're just, they're just, they're working at whatever their capacity is at that point in time. And so yeah. you may be fine pushing three or four of those reps, right? As long as they're not like flexing at the spine, if they're just using a little bit more hip extension to be able to move the load, like it's just a, it's just a mechanical drop at that point in time. Yeah, somebody's helping them. They're essentially, yeah. there's exactly yeah, yeah. it. It's so once you assist. One, yeah, once you, that's, that's what it's all about. <laughs> back back, more, back to the college weight room. Uh, yeah, so once you start to see a total breakdown in, in the eccentric, then it's like, you know, party's over at that point for the most part. Yeah, well, if somebody can't maintain the eccentric, you know the concentric is going to be twice as. Ugly, yeah, right? yeah, totally. Yeah, but a lot of those people could probably still rip a lot more at that point, just because they they've gotten really strong at that different type of squat. So that's yeah. like an important distinction. I think I think at that point in time, like by the time they can't control the eccentric, it's probably becoming a heel elevated. Good morning. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. Usually, it's usually what happens, right? Yeah. So, so so when you say when you say there's this little shift back, it's like. It's a little shift back. It's not like two distinct movements. When, when we can rename the exercise, you need to tell me, it's man. probably a good Because <laughs> I can do good morning for days. You know, yeah. <laughs> my fucking specialty. Right. Uh, all right, Kaz. So, Ryan, do you got any more questions? This, this, was, this was really, really solid. I, I, wanna, I, I think that people are going to get a lot out of this, especially my audience that might have some confirmation bias inside of this field. I think that they're going to get a lot of bias out of it. Really, really appreciate you, uh, you taking the time to, to come on. And Ryan, do you, have any, do you have any other questions? Anything that? No, nah, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to re-listen to this, and, uh, and then I'm just going to attack you on social media. I'm not going to tell you, though. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, that was great, man. Like I, I am having to just sit and listen right now. Cause it's, it's, uh, it was all really good stuff. And, and like I said, like uh, some of the little counter, like Ben just said, a little counter to some of our confirmation biases, but it all makes a lot of sense. You did a fantastic job explaining it. So, uh, no, nah, man, I really appreciate it. It was, it was great. And I think there's a lot of really good takeaways here. So Kazim, if people want to fight, cause I've, I've, I've had the, the luxury of, of watching you, um, in, in kind of in your environment, right. And you, with not with these models, but you having like muscles drawn on people. Um, I've had the ability to watch those seminars uh, and, and they, they are equally great. And, and the fact that you can do it without those models is a testament to, to your biomechanical knowledge. And so where can, where can people find out more about you? 
Yeah, so you guys can check out uh, n1.education. That's both a URL and our, our Instagram handle if you want to kind of get an idea. We do actually have a like a little free version of the course that has some of those videos in there with the drawings on people and stuff that you can kind of check that stuff out. Um, what I would say, you know, you know, for anybody that's really interested in this field is just understand that uh, like in terms of like all the cool advanced stuff that we want to talk about with program design, hypertrophy, like it all comes back to this anatomy and biomechanics stuff in terms of like knowing that allows us to make so much better, you know, questions and theories and hopefully soon, you know, study design on this stuff. So I think the one place that every coach could make sure that like, man, you are just absolutely the best. And this doesn't have to be through me is to just really understand this biomechanics and physics. Cause like I said, my thought process is, I look at what's going to make sense in terms of mechanical loading, right? And that's, that's like, if that doesn't make sense, all of the other stuff, like, I don't care what the EMG says. I don't care what your feeling says. I don't care what any of that says. And I think as, as coaches get into that process, they start being able to get rid of a lot of the noise and just start making better decisions for an individual. I want to take a look at some real world examples of some of the things that we were talking about on episode 20 of Bro Research Radio, which you already know because this is directly attached to that episode. So that was a pointless intro. What we're going to speak about is the idea of these external moment arms and their impact on the musculature that we're using and the amount of tension the muscle will have to use in order to overcome that external moment arm. So if we look at this first picture of this dude who's wearing a beanie in Austin in the spring, you'll see there's a dotted line going up from the foot and then there's a little star that looks like a third grader drew on here that that's probably not giving enough credit to third graders this is going to represent the approximate center of mass and this likely is not perfect but based off of where the bar is this is what you could approximate as being the center of mass in this individual and then we have a right a circle here in red that is the axis about which we were talking not the hip there's other axes obviously here but what we're going to speak about is the knee because that is going to correspond most to quadriceps which is what a lot of the discussion was about on the podcast so that yellow line there represents the external moment arm so if we look at the external moment arm here it's a given distance when we compare that to a different type of squat you can see that this one i am more upright and that there is a much larger external moment arm. We look at the distance here. So that is going to tell us that we're putting more strain, we're creating more torque at the knee, which is then putting more strain on the quadriceps. So when we see this in action, it's gonna look a little something like this direction over here somewhere. Okay, so here's a, a video of a low bar squat. So you can see that the first thing that I do is shoot the hips back. There isn't a whole lot of forward knee translation and you're not, because of that, you're not creating as much of an external moment arm or as great of an external moment arm at the knee. That's okay. The purpose of this exercise is to move a lot of weight. That's really the whole idea. It's not so much about quad hypertrophy at this point, rather it's trying to take advantage of levers as much as possible and actually make the weight as light as possible. When you compare that to something like this, wherever this video is, here it is. 
So this is the video of the, the picture above. The idea here, this is what Chasm was talking about, from my understanding, is that we want to see the knees traveling forward the whole time. They're gonna start with the knees, and really the movement ends when the knees stop moving forward. And you can see that right there at the bottom there. I continue to sink the hips down, but the knees don't necessarily move any further. So I believe that Chasm would say, hey, that's probably more range of motion than you need on that particular exercise. But that's the idea is we're creating more torque at the, the knee, which produces more force or necessitates more force on the quads. And then we have to recruit more tissue there. So one other thing I wanted to note is just the difference that load makes. So if we look at this comparison of, this is still a low bar squat, position of the bar is still right above the, the posterior delts. You can still see everything's lined up, but there is a greater moment arm at the knee. I'm getting more forward knee translation compared to the original squat over here. The difference is I don't have any load on my back. Uh, I shouldn't say that on camera. You are going to change your mechanics when loading gets heavy. You're going to use the most efficient pattern and the strongest pattern. This is probably the pattern that you've used your whole life and this is probably a pattern that's determined by your specific anthropometrics. So just an interesting thing to note, this is something if you can 